Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate communities shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our church by visiting cornerstonetulsa.org or by finding us on social media. This year, we're spending January through August working through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. We gather every Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11 o'clock, and we'd love for you to come and be part of our community. And if we can pray for you or if you have any questions, email us at hello at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. All right. Heavenly Father God, thank you for us being here today with you. Um, I pray that your words may be bound to our hearts Mm -hmm. so we may walk with you in your perfect grace and understanding as we listen to the sermon as John um, preaches your words. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Someone's doing their homework over there starting with Matthew 1. (laughs) Okay, you can be seated. This is the genealogy of Jesus. (laughs) Sorry, Susan. Hey, you had your Bible open. You get points for that, okay? Okay, this is going to be fun. One of the most concerning terms in the English language is food product. Food product. How many things had to have happened in the production of a consumable item that it could no longer just be described as food, but they had to add the qualifier product onto it? Like the FDA said, this is kind of like food, but not close enough that we need to call this food product. And you know the difference between food and food product. So we're going to play a little game where I'm going to show you a picture, and I would like for you to tell me, is this a food or is this a food product? So you'll shout it out loud, okay? So uh, up first here, oh, dang, my bad. Susan, we both screwed up today. You're good. Uh, Okay, first up, cheese whiz, food or food product? Pretty confident. How many people love it anyway? Okay, cheese whiz. I love all of the fake cheeses. Okay, this next one, food or food product? An avocado. Lots of millennials in the room. Love their avocado toast. Okay, how about this one? Key lime slime Twinkies, food or food product? Austin says it's a food. Okay, a little bit divided in the room on this one. Okay, cheddar jalapeno crunchy Cheetos, food or food product? Food product. Okay, more Twinkie fans than Cheetos fans in the room. Okay, some salmon with asparagus. That is a food. The the tones were a little bit deeper with affection on that one. And then how about this one? Pickled pig's feet, food or food product? You've been a lot of people like pickled pig's feet in this room. The 930 people hated it. The thing that I find the most concerning about the pickled pig's foot is semi-boneless. So you're gnawing on a little pickled pig's foot there. Oh, I think there was a bone in there. That is very disturbing. (laughs) What's that? How do you loop this around? Watch. Well, in the same way, that there's a difference between food product and food, a difference that we all know. 
There is a difference between the kind of church that's actively trying to cultivate disciples of Jesus Christ and a group of people who are consuming Jesus' product together. And the gap between consuming Jesus' product, like doing little book clubs and trying to encourage each other just to be moral, to be good, to be positive, and a group of people who are trying to push each other to actively follow Jesus, to actively seek to embody the kingdom of God where we live, work, and play is as big a difference as there is between organic fresh-squeezed orange juice and tang. There's a difference, and we all know that there's a difference. Dallas Willard said this, He said, to explicitly intend to make apprentices to Jesus could be quite upsetting to congregational life. Playing church is safe. Actively trying to cultivate a community of followers of Jesus is not safe, but it is good. We say that the mission of our church is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. We are not saying that we just want to be a group of people who are interested in religion vaguely together or that we just want to be a group of people who consume a religious product or service together, we are saying that we want to be people filled by the Holy Spirit who are actively learning what it means to be followers of Jesus in our time, to establish the reign of God in every square inch of our lives. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I guess at the end of November, I shared this passage from the end of Colossians chapter 1 that's going to be a keystone, a touchstone passage for us this year. Uh, Paul said, he is the one we proclaim, teaching and admonishing everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. And there's a direct relationship between the faithful proclamation of Jesus Christ and the maturity of his people. And so this year, we are slowly working our way through the Sermon on the Mount as one of many efforts that I hope our church takes and you'll take as an individual to hear the good news about the person of Jesus Christ, to be shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. I'd love to challenge you to commit this verse in chapter 29 to memory. Uh, This journey through the Sermon on the Mount is going to last us eight months. So it will be back to school for the next school year by the time we finish our journey through these three chapters. And I've just become convinced that in the process of working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, that the Holy Spirit is going to move, that the Holy Spirit is delighted for a community of people eager to hear and obey the words of Jesus. And so I just believe that we're going to be shaped, we're going to be challenged, we're going to be provoked to show mercy to people that we want to withhold it from, uh, to come to grips with our appetites that have gone astray. And and to, as a church, like, look for what it means to be people on the move, to be people keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. I believe as we make our way through the Sermon on the Mount that God is going to move and do stuff in our lives. One commentator uh, in, in the commentaries I've read on the Sermon on the Mount said that the Sermon on the Mount, the words are alive with enabling power. Alive with enabling power. Said elsewhere, said these words of Jesus breathe resurrection. To a world that is dying and distressed, the breath of God through the Holy Spirit and the words of Jesus is breathing resurrection to help us resuscitate and come back to life. And today's message is going to serve as an introduction to the whole series, and it's going to set the table for what we do in the months to come. Uh, I hope that you read at some point in the last couple of months, maybe it was while we were doing Year of the Bible, maybe it was in preparation for this sermon, Matthew 1 through 4 which is really what we're narrating Christmas, what we've just come through. And today is the last day of Christmas, if you do the 12 days of Christmas. 
But Matthew 1, we begin with this genealogy. We see the birth story of Jesus, his, his temptations, the Magi, the flight to Egypt, the beginning of his healing ministry. All of it kicks off in Matthew 1 through 4. And 1 through 4, if we really capture it, sets us up perfectly to hear the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. This comes from Dale Bruner. He said, even before Jesus gives his sermon, we are prepared by the gospel's four preceding chapters to see the person of Jesus as extraordinary. His genealogy that Susan shared with us. Thank you, Susan. His nativity, his baptism, his temptations, his services have taught us already that Jesus is, just to collect his titles and names so far, Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham, God saves. That's Yeshua, Jesus. That's what it means. God with us, Emmanuel, ruler, shepherd, Nazarene, baptizer with the Holy Spirit and fire. How about this one? The Father's priceless and deeply pleasing Son and light of the nations. These four chapters, we get a, a taste of what's to come in the person of Jesus. And Bruner says, we can hardly wait to hear what He has to say. And then we turn the page to uh, chapter 5 and the sermon begins, as Kennedy shared. And when he saw the crowds, Jesus went up on a mountainside, and he sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And if you look at the screens, you can see three distinct audiences in these two verses. Uh, there's Jesus, the teacher. There are the crowds who are gathering, and there are disciples uh, who come to him. Who, who does, who's the sermon addressed to? It's a little bit ambiguous. Is it to the crowds? Is it to the disciples? Is it to everybody? And there does appear to be in the text an us and them kind of dynamic. There are the disciples who are surrounding Jesus, and then there are the crowds. Everyone's in the hearing of the sermon, but the disciples are the ones who have come and sat at His feet, who have embraced the vulnerability and the exposure and the potential accountability of being a learner, someone who, who no longer has the excuse of, I didn't hear what He had to say. But while I think there's an us and them dynamic in the sermon, I think it's an us for them dynamic. When Jesus saw the crowds, He taught the disciples. He taught the disciples for the sake of the crowds. Bruner again. He says, one wonders why Jesus goes up the mountain when he sees the crowds. Why would he cease a successful healing ministry to undertake a seemingly less helpful teaching one? I, I shared a sermon last year called Watch This, where Jesus calls the first disciples and he says, I'm going to send you out to fish for people. And then they're like, how are you going to do that? And it's like he goes, watch this. And he starts casting out demons and healing people and forgiving sins. And in a moment, crowds are flocking everywhere he goes. It's like, this is how you do it. But why would he give up this healing ministry for what's potentially a less helpful teaching one? Why interrupt action with talk? Bruner says, the first answer, I believe, is that Jesus wants to practice preventive medicine, not just curatives. Do public health and not just surgery. Second, Jesus wants to incorporate His followers into His healing ministry and ethic. He apparently believes that when disciples believe, obey, and teach His sermon, they become a sick world's major antibodies and antidotes. We see, if you read Matthew 1 through 7, 7 gets you through the end of the Sermon on the Mount, how people are attracted to Jesus in a magnetic kind of way. 
Uh, one of my teachers in high school, now my friend Phil Blunt, said that the biggest problem in Jesus' ministry was crowd control. Everywhere he was, especially you look at it in the Gospel of Mark, he's almost always retreating from the crowds because they're chasing him everywhere, and he can barely find a moment alone to pray to his Father. The biggest problem in his ministry is crowd control. And when the disciples surrounded and followed Jesus, the crowds surrounded and followed them because they were entranced with Jesus and the proclamation of the kingdom and the enacting of the reign of God. It's the evidence is that people are being healed and demons are being cast out and they're hearing teaching from someone with authority. The world is intrinsically fascinated by the person of Jesus and either attracted to his message of the kingdom of God or they want to kill him for his message about the kingdom of God. But when the church abandons its core, loses its center, we also lose the crowds. When we replace our core with morality, with being vaguely religious, with playing church, people lose interest, which is why I keep coming back to John 15 as being integral to the life of our church. We don't need to busy ourselves with building the church. We need to busy ourselves with seeking the kingdom with remaining in Jesus. And all these things will be added unto you as well, Matthew 6, 33 and 34. I have a mentor named Charlie who, speaking to this kind of thing, of recovering our core, seeking the kingdom, said to me just wistfully in a conversation, he said, I just wish the church could be the church more often. Just to do the Jesus stuff. Um, Asbury, the church where I served for a decade uh, in 2007, was, was at the center of when the big ice storm came. Do you remember the big ice storm in 2007? Power was out for hundreds of thousands of people all over the city of Tulsa. And so many people from Asbury will tell you their favorite season in the life of our church, that church, was when the power went out and it became a site for the Red Cross and hundreds of people shacked up at the church. And it was an all-hands-on-deck kind of moment where they were like passing out food and giving people showers and shifts and providing hospitality. They did the Jesus stuff. Charles said, I just wish the church could be the church more often. Uh, A.J. Sherrill, a pastor, said, if we simply got back to taking Jesus seriously, we might finally be spared of more articles diagnosing why millennials are leaving the church. I believe the American church has lost its center that we've ignored or we've forgotten what it means to be people who follow in the way of Jesus. It's a political cartoon. Christians are under attack in this country. We're fighting back. What do you expect us to do? Turn the other cheek? Love our enemies? Beat our swords into plowshares? And Jesus is over in the corner saying, well... A pastor in New York named Rich Velotas said, evangelical Christianity in the United States is often characterized by a deep desire to have Christianity pervade our culture, but not have Christ pervade our being. We've left Christ behind in defense of Christianity. But what would it look like for a group of people to give Jesus a fresh hearing, to gather around with the disciples on the mountain just by the Lake of Galilee and to consider again what He said to us and what He believed should be characteristic of the people who are following in the way? What would it look like if we returned to the Sermon on the Mount? It's a Methodist missionary named E. Stanley Jones. He said, a little man in a loincloth in India picks out from the Sermon on the Mount one of its central principles applies it as a method for gaining human freedom, and the world, challenged and charmed, bends over to catch the significance of the great sight. He's talking about his friend Mahatma Gandhi. 
It's an indicator of what would happen if we would take the whole of the Sermon on the Mount and apply it to the whole of life. It would renew our Christianity. It would renew the world. Our present-day Christianity, anemic and weak from the parasites that have fastened themselves on its life through the centuries, needs a blood transfusion from the Sermon on the Mount in order to renew radiant health within it that it may throw off these parasites and arise to serve and to save the world. If the Sermon on the Mount has this capacity for renewal, if it can be a regenerative resource for the people of God, why don't we talk about it more often? Why isn't it a defining feature, defining characteristic of our life together? I think there are probably four reasons. One of those is we're ignorant about the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not sure that I've heard a sermon series or teaching on the Sermon on the Mount before. Uh, we have a big Bible. Maybe you've generally, uh, genuinely, like, don't know it. You've never read it. Uh, or you've read it before, but you, you don't really know what it's all about or what kind of bearing it has on your life. We don't know our Bibles. Another reason we might be reluctant to take the Sermon on the Mount to heart is in reading it, we think it's just impossible to obey. We think, like, I might want to, but this is not something that humans can do. This is like live without lust, live without anger, turn the other cheek. It's just plainly not doable. Bruner again. He said, Christology, who Jesus is, is the key to the mystery of Christian ethics, what Jesus teaches. Without the Son of God, the Sermon on the Mount is not only impossible, it is impertinent. It's insulting to think that we could try to obey this. But since the sermon's commands are accompanied by the sermon's commander, there is something very exciting ahead. But sometimes we're ignorant. Sometimes we think it's impossible. Maybe we think it's impractical. Like, sure, I would love to try. I mean, even if it were possible, it just doesn't work in the 21st century. We have a complex, a complex world, a pluralistic society, all these overlapping governments. It's just like it just couldn't happen. It's not tenable. This is Stanley Hauerwas. He said, the Sermon on the Mount cannot help but become a law if what is taught is abstracted from the teacher. Same point that Bruner was making. He said, when the sermon is isolated from the one alone who is the exemplification of righteousness, it seems natural to ask if all Jesus' teachings must be followed literally. And hear how much this sounds like the serpent in the garden. Does Jesus really think it's possible for us to live without lust? How would we be able to run the world if we don't resist evildoers? Once such questions are allowed to determine how the sermon is read, strategies are developed to help us avoid thinking that it actually applies to our lives. But what cannot be forgotten is that the one who preaches the sermon is the Son of God. That is, He's the Messiah making everything new. And the sermon is the reality of the new age made possible in time. These words are alive with enabling power. They breathe resurrection. I certainly don't intend this year to beat us over the head with a new law. Uh, that would be just uh, abusive, pastorally abusive. Jesus shared this with a community with the intent that we might live it out together, which means he was willing and prepared to enable us to do what he had called us to do. 
And so this year, as we make our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and we consider the Beatitudes, and that you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, the teaching on prayer, and fasting, and giving, and righteousness, and all of this, we need to read and hear the Sermon on the Mount, read it through the eyes of faith. Taking on uh, like the Sermon on the Mount like Peter did when he had the gall to put a leg over the edge of the boat, to hear Jesus calling him to walk his direction and to put that first step out onto shaky uh, terrain, to do the impossible. Peter had his eyes fixed on him who called, him who was his teacher, him who empowers, and we need to do the same thing. We need to read and hear and seek to obey with faith that God wants to empower us to do what He has called us to do. And had He not empowered us, it would just be mean. But through the Holy Spirit, He's working to do the impossible in and through us. And if our faith and our life are limited by what's possible and what's practical, we are no longer serving the God who raised Jesus from the dead because resurrection is the ultimate impracticality and the ultimate impossibility, and yet it's the cornerstone of our faith. If our life does not in some measure require the supernatural, God to do more in us and more through us than we can do on our own, we are no longer serving the God who raised Jesus from the dead. But I think the biggest reason that we may overlook the Sermon on the Mount, aside from ignorance, not just because it may be impossible or maybe impractical, is that our understanding of salvation has led us to believe that it's unnecessary, that it's unnecessary. This is all about confusion about what salvation really means. The gospel that is sadly taught in many American churches is primarily concerned with what happens after you die. So say the right prayer now so that later down the road, a year from now, 10 years from now, 70 years from now, you can go up and not go down. And salvation from this perspective, salvation that is chiefly concerned with what happens when you die, renders discipleship completely unnecessary. But salvation without discipleship is a false gospel. It's what Paul would call another gospel, something to be rejected. The invitation of Jesus is not only unto orthodoxy, believing the right things. It is at the same time an invitation toward orthopraxy, behaving in the right ways, right action. And salvation is not only about entering heaven and avoiding hell later. It's about living in the kingdom of the heavens now and laboring to push out and push back against the kingdom of hell now. Salvation begins and it ends with the invitation that Jesus gave Peter and Luke, follow me. The first conversation Jesus has with Peter is follow me. And after his three denials and Jesus is making up with him on the beach, he says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Peter come and follow me. Salvation begins and it ends with this invitation from Jesus to follow him, to learn from him how to live like him in the world. And the only time we can obey that invitation to follow is in the present tense. Salvation is not just a later on going to heaven thing. It's about learning to live in the kingdom of the heavens now. This is mind-boggling, but the expectation of Jesus in making disciples, is that we will be like him in the world. Matthew chapter 3 and 4, Jesus makes a splash in Palestine. Everyone knows his name because he's behaving like the king of the kingdom. 
He's casting out demons. He's healing. He's operating with spiritual and personal authority. And Jesus, when he saw the crowds, taught the disciples because he believed that it was better for the world. So he called on disciples so that they would be like him in the world. That's what a master-apprentice relationship is all about. Imagine this. You're, you're, you're an aspiring electrician, and you're apprenticing yourself to a master electrician. And for years and years, you study with him or her, learning the trade, learning the craft. And at the end of a decade, you can cite every Tulsa building code that's in the book. You can explain the ins and outs of electrical circuitry, but you can't, you can't figure out how to wire an outlet by yourself. Imagine what a, like a monstrous waste of time it would be if you knew all of the book knowledge, but you had none of the practical skills in case the boss didn't show up and they needed you to fill in their place. And yet, that is the prototypical posture of American Christians. And it's the result of choosing orthodoxy, just believing the right things, saying the right words, over orthopraxy, behaving in the Jesus ways, rather than taking them together. We're meant to be people who think rightly and then as a result of that live rightly, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Stanley Hauerwas again. He said, the fact is that the Sermon on the Mount is not in our creeds. Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. As the Apostles' Creed now stands, you can accept every word of it and leave the essential self untouched. You can be theologically orthodox and a massive jerk. Suppose we had written it in our creeds and had repeated each time with conviction, I believe in the Sermon on the Mount and in its way of life, and I intend God helping me to embody it. What would have happened? I feel sure that if this had been our main emphasis, the history of Christendom would have been different. Think about the Inquisition. Think about the Crusades. Think about the terrible things that people have done in the name of Jesus the spiritual abuse that many of you received growing up. If the Sermon on the Mount had been central to our identity and practice, what would have been different about church history? Then he goes on to describe Constantine, who was a Roman emperor who made Christianity the official religion of the empire. He said, with emphasis on doctrines which left unaffected our way of life, the Christian church could accept Constantine as its prized convert. And yet Constantine, after his alleged conversion, murdered his conquered colleague and brother-in-law, Licinius, sentenced to death his 11-year-old nephew, killed his eldest son, Crispus, brought about the death of his second wife, took the nails that were supposed to have come from the cross of Christ, placed one in his war helmet and another on the bridle of his war horse. And yet he was canonized by the Greek church and his memory celebrated as equal to the apostles. He talked and presided at the opening of the Council of Nicaea, which was called to frame a creed, and he was hailed as a bishop of bishops. Could this have happened if the men who had gathered there had made the Sermon on the Mount an essential part of the creed? It had no place in it, so Constantine could be at home. What had happened was that the Christian church had been conquered by a pagan warrior. And the church allowed itself to be thus conquered for this ideal of Christ did not have possession of its soul. This year, in seeking to hear 
and to understand and obey the Sermon on the Mount. We are doing nothing less than contending for the soul of the church and for the future of the world. Which may seem heavy and burdensome and intense, and yet there's also a lightness emanating from the one who gives this invitation and the one who teaches these words. It was only six chapters later in Matthew's gospel that Jesus would say, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm humble and gentle in spirit, and with me you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. While the Sermon on the Mount may at times feel impossible or impractical, what we are doing now, how the world is currently behaving and trying to get by is even more impossible to continue. Two angry mobs screaming at each other in sense that we're not being understood. The way that we're behaving now as a, as a culture, as a country, as, as, as human beings is untenable and it's killing us. We need a path forward. We need someone to shine light in a dark land because the way we're living is so confused and we're killing each other and killing ourselves in the process. The best thinking about how to live today is impotent and it is not leading to societal and to personal and to familial flourishing. And something needs to change. Jesus says, come to me, you who are burnt out, you who are discouraged, you who are fed up, you who have been chewed up by the system, you who are confused and looking for truth. Come to me and I'll give you rest. Yoke up with me. Be my apprentice, do life with me, and I will teach you how to be well. Something needs to change. In taking on the Sermon on the Mount, we are contending for our souls, we're contending for our present, and contending for the future of our world. The world is waiting with bated breath for somebody to take this seriously. And with God's help, that's what we're aiming to do this year. Now, I am not good enough of a preacher to make it happen, and we are not obedient enough and capable enough people to do this on our own, which means it has to be a work of the Holy Spirit of God. And so as we're embarking on this year, we're joining Peter in throwing a leg over the side of the boat and fixing our eyes on Him who calls us to do the impossible, opening up our mouths to let Him breathe resurrection in us, taking in these words that they might be, be proven to be alive with enabling power in us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said these words would crush the individual, but they give life to the church. It's something we're meant to learn to obey together. And so this morning, I want to I invite you to make some space. These really are just sacred minutes. I don't see any of you with your phones out right now. I don't see anybody going back and forth on texts. We're here right now. Those of you with children, other people have them, thanks be to God, right now. <laughs> You're here right now. And in this sacred space, we want to invite the Holy Spirit to do something in us. And I'm going to lead us through an exercise just to do that, make some space for that this morning. I want to challenge you as a piece of homework, as a first step, sometime this week to read the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7. shouldn't take you longer than 20 minutes. Um, 
uh, just make some space to read the Sermon on the Mount. And as you're reading, I want you to just pray those three words I've been, I've been hammering on for the last six months, a simple prayer. Just come, Holy Spirit. Would you make the words of Jesus alive with enabling power in me? And then after you've read and after you've prayed, I want you to keep your eyes open for little promptings from the Holy Spirit. It may feel unexpected. It may feel totally random. You may wonder if it's you or if it's God. Assume it's Him. Give Him the benefit of believing that His hand is guiding you. Be alert. Now, those of, you, those of us who struggle with looking at images that are harmful for us, men and women, there's going to be a prompting as we're working our way through the sermon this year uh, to discipline your affections. It's going to be a prompting from the Holy Spirit. Say yes to the voice of God, helping you to curb and to, to focus your appetites. For those of us who struggle with anger, you're going to feel a prompting from the Holy Spirit to show mercy to a person that you want to unleash fury on. Pay attention to the work of God. And one of the questions that I feel like the Lord has put in my heart over the last couple of weeks of getting ready for this sermon has been, to whom can we show unexpected mercy? I don't know where that's going to lead us just yet, but that's a question I feel like the Lord is going to lead us to an answer this year as a church. To whom can we show unexpected mercy? Who are the people that are historically marginalized from the church? Who are the people who, like Christians, they're used to Christians being mean to them? To whom can we show unexpected mercy? I believe God's going to show us an answer to that. We want to be on our toes and ready to hear and to obey quickly when He prompts us. I invite you just to close your eyes, to settle in. I want you just to assume and to believe that the Spirit of God is with us. The Spirit of God is even searching your heart and with you right now. And I believe uh, firmly that God honors our intentions. This year, do you intend to be counted among the company of disciples gathered around the feet of Jesus on the mountain? Or do you intend to just kind of be on the edge between the disciples and the crowd? When you think about those characters, where are you geographically? Are you at the very edge of his hearing and you're interested? You've heard things from other people, but trying to decide if you want to go about your day or whether you want to get closer for a better lesson. Are you in the crowd? Are you in the disciples? What's your intention to be this year? And Lord, as, as we're in your presence, I pray, come Holy Spirit that you'd make us aware of him who is alive and who is resurrected, whispering gently to our hearts, causing our hearts to burn in ways that we don't understand, tears to well up in our eyes, and we're like, what is this about? Come, Holy Spirit, make us aware of your presence. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to pay attention to your promptings. We pray, come, Holy Spirit, not just in our individual lives, but in the church, stir up something fresh, for the sake of the glory of your name in the city of Tulsa, for the sake of those who've gotten a really bad understanding of what you're like because church people have screwed it up, do something fresh among us for the sake of the glory of your name in Tulsa and for the sake of those who are far away. Lord Jesus, as we gather around the table, we remember with gratitude what you've done for us and how you continue to contend for us at the right hand of your Father. And pray, Lord Jesus, that it would please you to send the Holy Spirit through this bread and this juice. Make it be something so much more than that for us. Make it be a means by which we experience the life of God. In response, we just say thank you. All this we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.
Amen.